singing for the worth and the glory of God, proclaiming the glory of God. I don't know. Like I, I think of all these pictures in, in the Old Testament uh, where people got glimpses into the glory of God, and they, and they see it like Ezekiel chapter 1, where Ezekiel sees uh, uh, the Lord seated uh, in the heavens on a throne, and he's surrounded by rainbows and uh, in the Psalms where it says that his voice is like mighty rushing waterfalls or that his voice is like the army raising its cry in battle or a whole bunch of trumpets playing. Uh, you already know that one of my favorites comes from uh, Psalm 29 where it says that his voice twists the cedar trees in half and causes the deer to give birth, which is just still a really funny image to me, like, you know, like birth, deer in the field just giving birth because God spoke, you know, like... Uh, Startled or something? I don't know. You know, you've all you've all spooked a deer before. You know what that's like. Imagine a pregnant deer and God speaking, right? And so, that's something. But uh, one day we will see God face to face, and we will see the fullness of His glory, and uh, the fullness of Christ's glory as well. Open, if you would, this morning, please, to John 17. We're in, or go there in your phone. I always say open now. I'm just, you know, like find it in your phone, your iPad, your Google glasses, whatever it is that you're using. Uh, this morning, but it's interesting because we're, we're in this series now, this this five week series called "To the Cross and Back," and we're looking at kind of the last night of the life of Christ. And um, last week we talked a little bit about the Lord's Supper and His meeting with the the disciples and Judas's betrayal of Jesus. And today we are in a section that the editors have labeled the High Priestly Prayer. It's it's kind of this this John seventeen. It's Jesus praying on the last night of the life of. Uh, his life a few hours before he's arrested. And here's what we have on tap today. Our theology is this. God and Jesus are one in power, glory, and unity. They're one in power, glory, and unity. Our application is this. Jesus' desire for the church is unity like he and the Father share. Jesus' desire for the church, for the people of faith, is unity like he and the Father share. And our prayer today is God help us to be unified with people of faith. Now, here Jesus is. Judas has already left to go betray Christ. The Lord's Supper has already taken place. Jesus is with the other 11. They were singing hymns on their way to the garden. Now he is going to pray for a little bit. And here is the beginning of Jesus' prayer in John 17, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him all authority over flesh to give eternal life to all who you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now, Father, glorify me, he says in verse 5, in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. Jesus is not created. Jesus is creator. Jesus is eternally existing. Jesus has always been. In fact, John, in the beginning of the book of John, in John chapter 1, Jesus says, or John says this about Jesus. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things that have been made were made through him, and without him, nothing came into existence that has come to be. In other words, Jesus is eternally existing, 
and that he is the creator of all things, right? We read Genesis 1, and, and it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John 1 starts off with, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and he made all things. Colossians chapter 1, 15 through 20, tells us that Christ upholds all things, all creation by the word of his power, that he has formed all things, and in him all things hold together. Things continue to exist because of who Christ is. Things were created because of who Christ is. Jesus is God. The Father and the Son are the same in glory and unity and power. It's a weird concept for us because there's nothing in our life, there's nothing in our world that conveys this well. Uh, growing up in church and then doing a lot of Bible studies in college and leading some Bible studies in college, we were always, there was always the question, people were always going, how do you explain the Trinity? How is God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, how are they one but different? And the answer is there's not a good example. Uh, I, I've heard a lot of them. I've used a lot of them. There's just, there's not a good one, right? So like some people will say, well, it's the three states of, of water. So you've got the liquid state and you've got the gaseous state and you've got the solid state as ice. Except for those are three very different things. I, I very seldom pour steam into my iced tea um, for a couple of reasons. It goes up and not down. Anyway, like it's just, it doesn't work, right? Like it didn't fit. And so some people will say, well, it's kind of like you, Ryan. You're a, you're a son and a husband and a father. Yeah, but Ryan's only one. And the father was in heaven and Christ was on the cross and the spirit is hovering over the waters. There's there are three but one. Like how how can they be three things that have the same power and the same glory and the same uh, it, unity. Like, how, how does that work? I don't know. So don't ask, okay? It, it's one of those things that when we see them face-to-face, we'll get it, all right? If you have the example, like the example of the Trinity, you know, and you're just like, man, I'm certain that this one is not flawed. Like, I used to, like, I heard somebody back when I was in college just say, it's kind of like a casserole. It's one casserole, but there's a lot of different things in there, you know? Uh, you know, they all have their own kind of flavors. You know, I don't know. Like, I, I have a hard time describing God the Trinity as a casserole. That just, I struggle with that, you know. Um, the point is that Christ is with the Father, was with the Father before the foundation of the world, shared the Father's glory before the foundation of the world. When we think of Jesus, we are getting an idea of who the Son is. Hebrews chapter 3, 1 through, one through 3, said, wow. I did this wrong in the first service too. I wish that I had corrected it. It's Hebrews 1 verse 3, and I get tongue twisted and I say it backwards. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says that Christ is the fullness of God's glory and the exact imprint of his nature. Christ is the fullness of God's glory and the exact imprint of his nature. Okay? Colossians 2.9 says that the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form in Jesus Christ. The fullness of God dwell in flesh in Jesus Christ, right? And then we also see in, uh, in John 14, well, let's go over to this. It's just a couple of pages from where we are now. Look over in John 14. Same, this is the same night. This is a few minutes earlier, maybe an hour earlier from what we just read in John 17. And, uh, and Jesus is saying, look, I'm, I'm getting ready to go to a place and you know where I'm going. Look what he says, Jesus says in 14.4, you guys know where I'm going. And Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way to where you're going? Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you've known me, you would know my Father also. From now on, you know him and you've seen him. So Jesus says, 
he goes, look, I'm headed to a place. You already know the way. Thomas is like, man, we don't, we don't know the way. We don't know where to go. Um, it, it's funny because I'm, I'm not great at directions. Uh, so like people, I don't know any street names. Like tell me the restaurant that it's next to or something like that. You know what I mean? I eat. I, I don't pay attention to street signs. And so like people are like, you know the way over to such and such. I'm like, I have no idea where they live. And they're like, you've been there like five times. I'm like, it's, it is not in here anywhere, you know? Jesus goes, I'm going away, and you know the way to go where I'm going. Thomas is like, uh, guys, uh, anybody else? I, we don't know. Jesus goes, look, I am the way. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He goes, uh, if you'd known me, he goes, if you'd known me, you know my Father. From now on, you know my Father, and you've seen him. Now they're going, we have? we've seen God. So Philip says, uh, Lord, show us the Father, and that's enough. Just show us God the Father, and that'll be enough for us. Jesus says, have I been with you so long? This is verse 9. Have I been with you so long, and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I'm not speaking of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on account of the works themselves. Philip says, God, he says, Jesus, just show us God the Father and that's enough. And Jesus goes, man, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you know me, you know the Father. This is a really very important point for us to sit on for just a second. There are a lot of people in our world who will say to us as Christians, they'll say, well, I believe in God. I just don't believe Jesus was God. Or I believe in God. I just don't believe Jesus is the way to God. Here's what the Bible tells us right here. If you know Jesus, you know the Father. But John outlines this a little bit better for us in 1 John 2. And he says, if you deny Jesus, you deny the Father as well. If you don't acknowledge Jesus, you don't acknowledge the Father. They're a package deal. So someone who comes to us and says, oh, I believe in God, I just don't believe Jesus, does not believe in God. It's not the Father or the Son, it's both. They're together, they're one thing, right? So Jesus tells us, he tells Philip, and we get to kind of eavesdrop and glad that we aren't Philip in this moment. Philip's like, Lord, show me the Father, that's enough. Show me God, I want to see God. It's what Moses says back in Exodus 34. He's like, just show me your face, God. I just want to see you. And God says to Moses, man, you couldn't deal with that. He goes, you couldn't handle my glory, right? He says, I'll pass by, you can see my hind parts, but you can't see my face. No one can see my face and live. And then Jesus shows up, and he is the fullness, according to Hebrews 1.3, the fullness of God's glory and the exact imprint of his nature. In other words, what we testify about Jesus when we say, man, Jesus loves you. When we say Jesus gave himself up for you for the forgiveness of sins, that Jesus delights in you and is pleased with you, those are statements that we're also making about the Father because if we know who Jesus is, we know who the Father is. They have the same character. They have the same power. They're unified. They're one. Sometimes when I was growing up uh, in church, um, I, I grew up under a pastor for the first eight or nine years of my life who every sermon, it didn't matter what text he came from, every sermon was get saved, every single one of them, which isn't a bad message to teach. I just don't know if every text teaches that, you know? And so every week it was get saved, get saved, get saved. And I remember distinctly being about eight or nine years old and going, done that, but what next? Like, what, 
Now what? <laughs> you know, somebody tell me something else to do. I don't know what to do, right? Uh, but whenever they would teach, whenever my pastor would teach, I felt like the Old Testament was kind of so we could get to know God, and the New Testament was kind of so we could get to know Jesus. That's a, that's a, a mistake, all right? They're one and the same. If we know the Son, we know the Father. Some people will say, I don't like the God of the Old Testament. I like how Jesus shows up in the New Testament. One and the same, okay? Two people, one goal, one power, one unity. It, Jesus says, if you know me, you know my Father who is in heaven, okay? Listen to this. Let me show you something here. Go back a couple of chapters again to John chapter 8. John chapter 8 is a great chapter. I would love uh, to walk us all the way through it sometime. Um, it's just such a good chapter, but it's also kind of funny. I mean, probably not your kind of funny, my dark humor kind of funny. Um, but in John 8, pick up with me in verse 15. Well, I'm going to start in verse 14. John 8, 14. Jesus said, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I come from and where I'm going, but you don't know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge me according to the flesh, but I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I, it is not I alone who judge, but I am the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about myself. Here's the situation. Jesus is going along. He's proclaimed himself to be God, and the people lose their minds. They're like, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. You're calling yourself God? Okay, now we got to kill this guy. That's literally what's happening. We need to put this guy to death. He's calling himself God. Jesus goes, I don't understand your problem. He goes, you say in the law that if two people bear witness about something, it's true. I'm bearing witness about you, uh, to you that I am God, and God the Father bears witness that I am God. Look at the works that I've done. Look at the things that I've accomplished. I testify that I'm God, and God is showing that I'm God, and so like they're... Like, He's messing with them, and it is wrecking their lives, okay? It is wrecking their lives. They're like, we know who your dad is. He was a carpenter. We've met your mom. We had dinner at her house. Like, we know your siblings. And he's like, no, no, no. You think you know. He goes, you think you know where I came from. You think you know where I'm going, but you don't know. Because if you knew, you'd know of the Father as well. And so he has this conversation with them, and then look down in, in 28 and 29. He says this. Jesus says this. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, that means when you've put me on the cross, when you've lifted up the Son of Man, you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing of my own authority, but speak only what the Father taught me to speak. And He who sent me, the Father, is with me, and has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. Jesus stands in front of him and He says, listen, I want you to know something. He goes, I only do what I hear the Father, I only do what the Father tells me to do, I only speak what the Father tells me to speak. He goes, that's, that's how I behave. And the book of John tells us this over and over again, that Jesus only did what the Father told him to do and only said what the Father told him to speak. And he says, I want you to know something. The Father's always with me. The Father never leaves me alone. Why? Because I do exactly what he tells me to do. Now, there's this interesting text in Philippians 2 that when I was growing up, I think I got taught wrong. But in Philippians chapter 2, it says, Have this attitude in yourself, which is also in Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. And I would have teachers stand up in front of me and say, see, Jesus didn't even consider himself equal with God. That is not what the text is teaching. What the text is teaching is Jesus, knowing that he was equal with God, did not feel a need to chase after equality with God. Why, why would Jesus not feel a need to be equal with, try to be equal with God? Because he is equal with God, right? 
If you're the best, you know, like if you're the best at whatever it is you do, you don't have to try to be the best. You are the best, right? Jesus did not have to chase after equality with God because he was equal with God. Because he is the fullness of God. Because he's the fullness of God's glory. Because he's the, the fullness of deity dwells in him. Because he is the fullness of his power. Because if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. I don't, man, that's a mind twister. I don't know. Right? But Jesus, there's the Father who is in heaven who sent his Son. And they share power and they share unity and they share glory. And if you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. Because Jesus is the exact imprint of God. The exact. And Jesus tells us, I only do what the Father tells me to do. I only speak what the Father tells me to speak. The Father never leaves me alone because I always please him. Now, that is not a unity that can be broken. That is not a unity that can be undone. If you, if you know Jesus, you know the Father. If you know the Son, you know the Father. If you know the Son, you know God. If you know one, you know the other. Can't be undone. What does that do for us? What does that mean for us? So go back to John 17 with me. Jesus is praying. This is moments, hour, something before he's going to be arrested. He'll be arrested very soon. I mean, probably moments because as he finishes praying, Judas is going to show up with some soldiers. Moments before he's arrested. This is what Jesus prays. He's been praying for the 11 and then he says this in verse 20, John 17, 20. I don't ask for these 11 only, but also for all who would believe in my name through their word, that they would all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us and that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them so that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so the world can know that you sent me. And loved them even as you loved me. Here's his prayer. I want you to catch this. Moments before he's arrested, he's praying. And he's saying, my prayer for them, Father, for the believers, for those who would put faith, for those who would come to faith in Jesus, my prayer for them is that they would be one just like you and I are one. That they would be in me and I would be in you, Father. And that the world would see their love for one another and see that I am in them and you in me. And that all because of this, the world would come to believe that I am the Son of God. Check this out. Here's what Jesus prays for. Not world peace, right? It's not kind of like this, uh, this pageant kind of question. And what, would, what do you think the world needs? Well, I think, you know, it's like, here's what Christ prays for. Here's what he does. Here's what he prays for moments before he's arrested. Father, I can't wait to be back with you. I've finished everything you've told me to do. I'm ready to be restored to the full glory that I had with you before the foundation of the world. And here's my prayer for the people who will believe in me, that they would be perfectly unified like you and I are perfectly unified. Now, if you have been around churches very long at all, you know that that's not typical of churches. Churches aren't typically unified. <laughs> Churches are typically divided. Micah and I, uh, I, Micah's been doing this for 20-something years. I, I had done it for 20 years before I came off the road, traveled and preached all over in revivals and different retreats and different things. And in my busiest time, I was preaching in about 40 different churches a year. 
And half of them easily, easily half of them, and I feel like that's being conservative, had gone through some sort of split, you know, in the past decade or two over preference of music or over preference of seats, literally, over the kind of chairs that the church has had. It's silly. Um, over what people believed about the Lord's Supper or how baptism was performed or whatever. There were splits. Over uh, the pastor that hired a music guy, half the people didn't like the music guy, right? Because like, there was a church, uh, and I didn't know this until like two years later, but there was a church that I preached at, and as you know, I'm always in my converse uh, but this church was a little more conservative, and so I wore, like, nice pants and a button-up shirt, maybe even a jacket, you know, like, and, and I thought, okay, good, that's better, right? But I found out later, the pastor, who's a friend of mine, he was like, man, like, my church did not like you because you, you kept wearing your Converse, like, they wanted you to wear nice shoes. And so sometimes it's the Converse that keeps people from, like, these are awesome orange Converse, though, I don't know if you noticed, but, like... <laughs> I, I think they're cool, and so I won't wear my dinosaur ones as often, you know. I did get told, man, you're an adult, but, like, the dinosaur ones are pretty cool. You're just jealous. Um, <laughs> and so uh, it'd be cool if they had, like, little spikes on them. I'm going to see about that. The church is divided a lot. The church is broken a lot. And yet, I have yet to find a church that legitimately divided over what they believed about Jesus. Here's what I believe about Christ. You ready? You ready? Jesus is God, okay? Full deity, the verses, all the verses we just looked at, fullness of glory, fullness of deity dwells in him. Jesus is God. He died on the cross for our sins, not just mine, but yours as well. He died on the cross for our sins. He was raised from the dead three days later, Okay? Faith in him saves you, not your works, not the church you attend, not the kind of car you drive, not how you dress, not whether or not you're wearing a hat this morning or not wearing a hat this morning. Faith in Jesus saves you. And number five, he's coming back one day. I believe those things about Jesus, right? And if you believe those things about Jesus, we can disagree on everything else. And you and I are one. You and I are in the same boat. We will stand before the same God. The song that we just sang there at the end, we will stand before the same God and we will worship him. And I don't know what it'll be like because I know we won't have these bodies, but we will be before him and we'll be like, what's up? You know, like we won't be going, oh, you made it? You know, it won't be like that. It'll be like, it'll be like, oh, you believe in Jesus? I believe in Jesus. And there's Jesus, you know, like that. We probably, we probably won't even be looking at each other because it's like Jesus. We'll be like, hey, remember when I hated you? Sorry about that, right? Because, like, <laughs> Jesus. Jesus says this, and I, I, I feel like I need to emphasize this a lot. But Jesus says in John 13, also the last night of the life of Christ. Hours, right, before he's arrested. On the last night of the life of Christ, as he gathers his disciples together, in John 13, 34 and 35, he says, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. By this, all men will know that you're my followers, that you love one another. Somewhere along the way, we've taught people that the way the world knows that we're followers of Jesus is by how we treat them. Jesus never said that. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that, in fact. In fact, in 1 John, 10 different times it says the way the world knows that we belong to Christ is how we treat one another, how we care for one another. 
Maybe you have that friend that's been so disillusioned with church. They haven't abandoned their faith, but they've abandoned church. They don't go to any church anymore. They're not part of any fellowship anymore. They really kind of want nothing to do with Christians. They've been soured on the whole Christian thing. I'll just do my Jesus thing at home. I'll just read my Bible at home. I'll just watch uh, a sermon online. You know what I mean? And they're done, and they're like, I'm just going to busy myself with loving the world because I'm sick of the hypocrites in church. Here's the problem with that. The problem is the way the world comes to know who God is, is by how you and I love each other. That's the problem with that. The problem with saying, I'm done with the church. The problem with saying, I'm done with you who named the name of Jesus. The problem is it misconveys the truth of God. What did Jesus pray in John 17? He says, I pray that all who would believe in me would be one just as you and I are one, that they, I would be in them, and I, uh, sorry, that they would be in me, Christ says, and that I would be in you, God, and that through them the world would come to know that I'm the Savior. You know how the world comes to know that Jesus is real, that he's the Savior? By how we love each other. By how we treat one another. It is our care and our love for each other that shapes us and that conveys to the world the truth of who Christ is. Listen to this from 1 John. 1 John 4, beginning in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love, the implication here is the brethren, the fellow believer, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world that we would live through him. In this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love each other. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Our job is to love each other, to care for one another, to pray for one another, to delight in, in each other, to love, right? Look at this. Look at what he says a few verses later. John 4, 1 John 4, 19 and 20. We love one another because he loved us first. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment we have from God. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. If we say we love God, but we don't love the person who believes in God, then we don't love God. That's a problem. It doesn't say here, anyone who says they love God but doesn't love the world doesn't love God. It says here, anyone who says they love God but doesn't love the brother, the person who has put faith in Jesus, doesn't love God. Christ's prayer for us as believers in him moments before he was arrested, moments before he was arrested, was that we would be perfectly unified like he and the Father are unified. Now, you're going, but Ryan, there are some people I disagree with. Granted, I'm the most judgy person in this whole room. I disagree with a lot of people, right? I just do. I'm trying really hard to kind of like keep my judgy attitudes at bay. But like, yeah, I think there's a lot of silliness that happens in the church. Right now you're thinking, Ryan, you're pretty silly. That's not exactly what I mean, but you have a fair point. Okay, listen. Listen. 
Paul and Barnabas, all right? Paul and Barnabas, two chief figures in the New Testament. Paul, prior to being the preacher of the word of God, was a persecutor of the church. He was arresting Christians. He was having them thrown in jail. He was having them beaten. He was casting his vote against them to put them to death, and in some cases was instrumental in putting Christians to death. That's Paul. He becomes a believer. He's so excited about being a Christian, he goes back to Jerusalem where these 11 dudes and now the 12th one named Matthias and some of the other Christians are, and Paul comes to the Christians. He's like, guys, I'm a Christian now. And you got to know that they were a little bit nervous. The Bible says so. The Bible says that they were not willing to receive him because they're like, uh, we remember you killing our friends. That makes sense, right? Buddy, a, a buddy of yours is killed by a guy. That guy then comes over to your house for dinner. It's going to be awkward, right? <laughs> Paul shows up and he's like, hey, guys, I'm a believer. I really got faith in Jesus now. And they're like, uh, we're not so sure. A guy named Barnabas shows up. Barnabas is an encourager through and through. It's part of what his name means. Barnabas shows up and he goes, no, 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 guys, it's for real. Paul is a believer now. And they're like, okay, okay, okay. But they're still a little bit iffy about it. And so Paul moves up to Tarsus. He's about 300 miles north of Jerusalem. He's like, look, maybe I should just go somewhere where people don't know me, right? So he moves north. Barnabas also moves north to Antioch. And Barnabas goes, man, there's a lot of ministry that can happen there. I'm going to go get my good buddy Paul and let's do ministry together. So Barnabas and Paul start doing ministry together. The church are like, man, you guys, you guys are solid. We need to send you out so you can tell other people about this. And Paul and Barnabas go out and go on this missionary journey. They take a young man with them named John Mark. Okay, they take a young man with them. Everybody good so far? Paul, Barnabas, take this young man with them, John Mark. We don't know why John Mark quits about a third of the way through the trip, but he quits. I got to go home, you know, I miss my mama's cooking, my bed is, I don't know, we don't know. John Mark, he bails, he goes home. A year or so later, Barnabas is like, hey, let's go visit all the churches that we preached in back in the day. Let's go check on them, let's go check on the elders, let's go see how they're doing. Paul goes, that's a great idea, let's do it. Barnabas goes, let's take John Mark with us. Paul goes, heck no. Barnabas goes, no, 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 we got to take John Mark with us. Paul goes, I will not take with us someone who bailed out halfway through the trip. Barnabas wants to take him, man. John, uh, Paul's like, no. And we, the Bible says there was a sharp disagreement among them over John Mark. Not a sharp disagreement over Jesus. Sharp disagreement over John Mark. And Paul's like, we are not taking him. And Barnabas is like, yes, we are. And Paul's like, no, we're not. And Barnabas is like, yes, we are. And they, I don't know. I don't know what they did. I don't know if they, I don't know what they did, right? Sharp disagreement. So Barnabas goes, fine, I'll take John Mark. Paul goes, fine, I'll take Silas. And Barnabas and John Mark go one way and Paul and Silas go another. And they don't do ministry together again. Sharp disagreement. Was it a disagreement over Jesus? No. And then later in Paul's letters, as he's writing, Paul says, I commend to you John Mark, my son in the faith. He's a good kid, man. And he builds up John Mark in a later letter that he writes. You know what, who else he builds up? Barnabas. Man, there's no one like Barnabas. Barnabas is a good dude. So I need you to catch something. Sharp disagreement. And yet Paul still spoke of them with affection. Why? Because they named the name Christ. Because they're brothers in Christ, because they're family in Jesus, because Christ is the bond. Can we have sharp disagreement with another believer? Sure. I've mentioned it in here before, and I'll mention it again. There are some people that I have done ministry with and worked with in the past that I probably won't ever work with again. 
I mean, let's just be honest. Most of us are pretty jaded. Maybe, maybe some of us more so than others. Here's my general feeling. My general feeling is people don't change. People just become more of who they already are. If they're nice people, they seem to become nicer. If they're jerks, they seem to become jerkier. You know? I don't know. I, I just, I feel like people tend to kind of just, whoever they are, they become more of that. It's unfair, and I realize that it's unfair. It's unfair because part of it for me is based on my experience with my dad. My dad just became more and more of the bad guy that he was, more and more, like never changed. Every time you thought he would change, it was a trick or it was a ploy or it was just to get you to do something for him for that moment, and then he'd like cut you, you know? Like it was bad. It just got bad and worse and worse. And so anybody had someone in your life that, 100 chances, you've given them 100 chances and they're just the same as they've always been and it just, you finally just go, okay, I'm done, right? And so we kind of just apply that to everybody. We look at people who make mistakes. We look at uh, pastors who have sinned and done shameful things and trust me, you don't have to Google far to find pastors who have decimated churches and destroyed churches and taken advantage of people in their churches and abused their authority. Like, I mean, you don't have to look far for that. But here's why it's unfair. It's unfair because when we think about that and we look at these people and we're like, man, they're never going to be different. They're never going to change. It's unfair because we're not taking into account Jesus. Jesus can change anyone. Jesus can change anything. And more importantly, if they have named the name Jesus and we have named the name Jesus, then they are forgiven and I am forgiven and they are righteous and I am righteous and they are holy and I am holy even if they or I are an idiot today. You, you don't have to partner with them. Paul and Barnabas went their separate ways. And maybe, maybe the nicest thing you can say about somebody that you've had a sharp disagreement with, but you know, for, you know that they're in Christ. Maybe the nicest thing that we can do when someone asks us about them is say, look, man, I know, that, I know they're in Jesus. Man, I know they're loved by God. Man, I know they're forgiven. And see, that's really kind of sneaky a little bit because no one's asking you. You're not giving them what you think about it. <laughs> you're just telling them what God thinks about it. God loves that person. God has redeemed that person. God has forgiven that person. And then maybe somebody will go, how do you feel about him? Let's, let's just stick with God loves that person. <laughs> you know? There's going to be sharp disagreements in the church. Paul says so in, in 1 Corinthians. He says, if there weren't disagreements among you, we wouldn't know who's authentic. That's a whole nother can of worms for another time. But hear this, okay? Those who name the name Jesus are one with us and we with them. There are a hundred other churches 10 miles down the road that are meeting right now, and we don't, we don't agree with them on everything that they teach. But every church, not just down the road in San Angelo, but all over this state and this country and this world, every church that proclaims that Jesus is God, that he died for the forgiveness of sins, that he was raised from the dead, that faith in him saves us, and that he's coming back again, every single person who believes those things, we are one with them. Even if they get everything else, or even if we get everything else wrong. 
The name of our church is the 456. It comes from Ephesians 4, verses 4, 5, and 6. You're going to ask me then why it's not called the 4456, and I'm going to tell you because I'm stupid, okay? But 12 and a half years now, it's been that name, and so it's going to stay that name. It's too late to change it now. Some of you are going to be able, well, if it's verses 4, 5, and 6, shouldn't we call it the 456? Because 456 sounds like a chapter 4 verse. Listen, I get it. I screwed up, all right? I named it the wrong thing. All right, my fault. I did not have enough foresight into all the problems that it would create. <laughs> okay, um, the forty-four fifty-six, or the four colon four five six, or the e, the EPH four four five six, or whatever other thing you want to call it, I'm good with. Okay, I'm good. If you want to make, don't make fun of the name to me because I'm really sensitive. <laughs> I'll lose sleep over it. Make fun of the name to Pierce and Micah, and then they'll make fun of me, and I'm used to that, so I'll get over that more quickly. Um, but hear this, okay? Ephesians 4, verses 4, 5, and 6, Paul is addressing the fact that the Gentile believers and the Jewish believers are at odds with one another, and he's been reminding them that they have the same faith. And in Ephesians 4, verses 4, 5, and 6, he says, we are one body, called to one hope, by one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. So I say this, everyone who names the name Jesus, everyone who knows the Son knows the Father. And they are called, right? Uh, we are one body, not just the 456 church, but one body with all who name the name Jesus, called the one hope, that is the hope of resurrection, that is the hope of eternal life, by one spirit who, according to Ephesians 1.13, seals us and marks us, who lives in us, according to Romans chapter 8. We all have the same Holy Spirit. One Lord, that is Jesus, one Savior, one Lamb sacrificed for us, one bloodshed, one Redeemer of mankind, one faith in Christ. There isn't a different faith. There isn't another way to be saved. It is through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved. The in one baptism, not the water, not the tank, not the river, not a dunk booth. One baptism, that is one immersion into the person and character of Jesus Christ and God Most High. And we have one God who is in heaven, our Father. And if we have that and they have that, then we are with them. Even if we disagree with them on some things. I propose this. One of the ways that we can begin to love the brethren better. Now, listen, I'm not saying don't ask hard questions. Ask hard questions. If you have a close friend that believes something different than you, this is a really good opportunity to ask questions and go, why? But here's what I would encourage us to do. We meet somebody, and they, we say uh, they go to such and such a church. And usually the first thing we do is, so I heard that you guys believe in this. And we pick something that's not Jesus, something to do with spiritual gifts, something to do with baptism, something to do with, oh, I heard you believe in that. Instead of going, oh, you go to such and such a church, tell me what you know about Christ. Part of the reason that we are so divided with the other believers is because the things that we enjoy talking about with other believers are all the things we disagree on. What if we started talking about Christ? What if, what if the questions that we were asking were about the cross and the empty grave? What if the thing that united the believing church, get this, wrap your brain about, around this. What if the thing that united the believing church was Jesus? I know it sounds dumb, you know. What if the questions we asked other people, oh, you go to such and such a church? Isn't that where the pastor is a woman? Or isn't that like, gosh, just quit. Oh, you go to such and such a church. What do you believe about Christ? Well, I believe he 
is God. I believe that he died for our sins. I believe that he was raised from the dead, that faith in him saves you, and that he's coming back. Oh, me too. Cool. We're on the same team. Brings us to our prayer today, and that's this. God, help us to be unified with the people of faith. God, help us to be unified with all the people of faith, those who have put faith in Jesus. Would you take just a moment to pray that right where you are, that God would help you to be unified with the fellow believers, that our love for the fellow believer would show the world that Jesus Christ is God. God, we thank you for the love and the grace that you've shown us. We're thankful to you, God, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That we didn't have to get it all right. That we didn't have to have everything understood to be called your children. All we had to do was believe. Believe in Christ. Believe in Jesus, offered up for our sins, raised from the dead. God, too often I have been divided with people who have put their faith in Jesus. Too often, God, I have incited division in the church. And I pray, God, that from this day forth, not just myself, but all in this room would be people who seek the unity of the church. even where we have sharp disagreement like Paul and Barnabas, that we would still speak about those who name the name Jesus as though they are loved and forgiven and righteous and holy. And that God, that this church here, this specific group of people would be such a loving, caring place that all who hear about us and know us, God, would not admire us, but would come to know that Jesus is the Son of God. people would come to put their faith in you, Lord God, through your son, Jesus Christ. May the world know that we are your disciples by how we love one another.